Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46. We wrapped up our summer series through the parables. It was an amazing time, and a lot of you said, let's do it again next summer, and I think we're probably going to. Uh, The parables are just magnificent portrayals of the majesty of Jesus, and it was on display every Sunday. We loved it. And we get to transition now back into the Gospel of John. Uh, We will be studying the Gospel of John next Sunday. John chapter 9 is where we will be jumping back into one of my favorite chapters In all of the Bible, John 9, the man born blind, the disciples say, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? What happened that this man would be born this way? And Jesus doesn't go to causality. Jesus goes to purpose. And he says, it's none of those things. It's for the purposes of God to be fulfilled in him that that God would be glorified. It's for the glory of God. As I've been studying John 9 this whole summer, really, I just kept hearing the voices of the disciples saying, why is this happening? Why is this happening to this man? What happened? Why is this going on? And as Jesus gives them the answer, I realized that this was an answer that was a hope and a help to me. As we went through a trial with our son just about four months ago, I couldn't help but think about the man born blind as I saw Tyler Uh, lying on a a little makeshift hospital bed. Um, I I couldn't help but think about God's answer through Jesus Christ, that it's for the glory of God that the man was born blind, and it's for the glory of God that my son was born with a broken aorta and a heart that had a hole in it. It's for the glory of God. And so I thought, as a transition sermon back into John 9, I just, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning, and I just want to share my heart. Um, a, a personal testimony, Lord willing, it's straight from the scriptures. Um, there is so much that has been learned and has been seen and understood over the last four months. And um, this isn't even going to be those things. Uh, this isn't a lessons we have learned sermon. The reality is we're still learning those lessons and those lessons are forged deep in our souls. And so that sermon might come for another time. This sermon is how God held our hand through those moments. That's what this sermon is. The anchor that held us um, as we were unraveling and wondering and questioning and wrestling. There were many principles from God's word that just jumped right out to us and were our anchor. Um, We haven't really spoken much about what went on with our son because... Um, like I said, we're still kind of learning those lessons, and, and I want to be very careful because I know there are people going through much worse things, so I, I don't want to just say, oh, what we went through is the biggest issue. But I, I do think it would be irresponsible of me as a pastor to not spend at least one Sunday testifying to the goodness of our God. Um, and honestly, thanking you um, The way that you encouraged us as a church is the way the church is supposed to work. We saw the church in action. We saw prayers. We saw love. We saw so many amazing things. We saw practical, tangible things. People came over and cleaned our house, mowed our lawn. And my neighbor said, this is the best your lawn has ever looked since you've lived here. We said, yes, it's amazing. 
You guys are gracious and generous to give us a gift card that took care of all of our, our parking, our gas, and our food while we were in our hospital stay for two and a half weeks. You guys were amazingly gracious and generous. And so what I wanted to do this morning is thank the Lord for you all and, Lord willing, put Christ on display, who he is and what he does, in such a way that you too might have an anchor in the midst of your storm. Um, Before we dive into those anchors, if you will, I just want to say at the outset, just to qualify for everything I'm going to say, I am not an expert in suffering. Just because we went through what we went through doesn't mean we're experts and I'm going to write a book when life stinks. I'm not, I'm not an expert. Frankly, I don't think what we went through was suffering. I don't think that it holds a candle to what our brothers and sisters are going through around the world. I think what we went through was a trial, and there were some very dark days that were some of the darkest days of my life, but I don't think it was suffering. So I'm not here speaking as an expert on suffering. I'm speaking as a pastor, as a shepherd who cares for your souls. And I was given an amazing opportunity to walk through a very difficult season. I went through a trial, and God held my hand in my heart the entire time. And I want to speak of his faithfulness in the midst of that trial. And if you're here this morning, and you're going through a season of trial, a season of testing, a season of suffering... I've been praying for you. Um, I've been praying that these words from Scripture would just be a waterfall washing over your soul. We're going to look at so many verses this morning. Many of them we don't even have time to actually turn to, and I'll just quote them to you. And I just pray that our vision of who God is in our souls would just be blown up this morning, bigger and bigger and bigger. We can never have too big of a vision of who our God is. And so I pray that if you are going through suffering right now, you'd be able to to throw your anchor deep into the character of God as we dive into what the Bible says he is and what he is doing. And if you're currently not in a season of testing or trials or suffering, um, I've been praying for you as well that these words would be an encouragement to your heart that would prepare you for that moment. Jesus promised his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. We've been promised hardships. And my prayer for you is that you would listen to the character of God and you would cling to these biblical truths and prepare your hearts even now for the moment that God would take you through a valley. My wife and I were very privileged to grow up in a Christian home and and in churches that um, had high view of God. Um, That high view of God is what you need in these moments. And then we were very privileged for about the last seven years doing ministry together to really study through things that dealt with suffering and the sovereignty of God. Those all prepared us for the time that we were able to walk through a trial with our son. They prepared us very well. And for those of you who have been through a trial that's been very challenging to your soul, you know that you can't really learn things in those moments to help you, right? You can't um, walk through those moments learning while you're going through to make sure your heart is steadfast. It's based on what you have learned and the preparation and training you've received that will enable you to react the right way. I'm totally infatuated by the Navy SEALs, probably because they can do things that I can't even do in my dreams. Like, my, my mind lets me fly in my dreams, but in my dreams it says you can't do what the Navy SEALs do. Like, they, it's amazing what they do. They go to war, and 
when they come back, they talk about how they react in those moments. One of the things that you hear across the board, they say, I trusted my training. I just reacted. I didn't, I didn't have to think about what I was doing. I just reacted in the moment because I was trained. They trained for over three years to become elite warriors. And so when they go into the moment of battle, they just trust their training. So if you are here this morning and you aren't going through trials, you aren't going through suffering, I pray that you would be prepared and trained for just a, a few moments this morning so that you could trust some training as you go through those trials down the road. There are two main points, and if you want to write down an outline, it's just these two things. There was ballast in my boat, and there was an anchor for my soul that held me fast. There was ballast in my boat, and there was an anchor for my soul. Ballast, it's, what, it's a weight in a boat that keeps it from tipping over in the middle of a storm or tough waves or seas that are crashing against it. And an anchor obviously holds that boat there. The ballast in my boat, number one, is two things. It was who God is and what God is doing. Who God is and what God is doing. That was the ballast in my boat. As we walked through this season with our son, my ballast was, okay, I know who God is and I know what he's doing. I have no idea why he's doing anything. And I don't need to know the why, and we're going to talk about that. But I know what he is doing and I know who he is. So let's spend a little bit of time on those two things. Who he is. Two, two principles from God's word that just continually stood out to me as I walked through this season. Number one, God is absolutely always sovereign. God is absolutely always sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over every molecule in the world. There's no maverick molecules. That's why I have you in Isaiah chapter 46, starting verse 8. God says this, remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying that my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I call a bird of prey from the east and the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it and surely I will do it. This is what it means to be God. To be God, you have to have your hand in every human function, in every natural function. God is sovereign. And and just let it be said very clearly as we dive into his sovereignty, this does not contradict, even though it seems paradoxical, this does not contradict our human responsibility at all. God is 100% sovereign. We are 100% responsible. They work at the exact same time, and the Bible is so clear about that. There's mystery in how those two function, but the Bible is abundantly clear that God is always sovereign, and we are always culpable. We are always responsible. So none of what we're going to look at this morning detracts from our moral responsibility. You have choices to make, and the choices that you make morally affect your eternal destiny. You will not stand before God one day and say, well, I didn't want to make that choice, but you forced me to. No, You will be judged based on what you choose to do. So none of what we're going to talk about this morning contradicts that. What we are going to talk about is the sovereignty of God that will destroy trivial notions of who God is. John Piper says it this way. The biblical categories of God's sovereignty lie like landmines in the pages of the Bible, just waiting for someone to seriously open the book. They don't kill, 
but they do explode trivial notions of the Almighty God. It's everywhere. When you read the Bible, you will see God is in control of everything that's happening in the world. And I wanted to just give you a cascading waterfall of verses that would encourage your soul. And if you can't even uh, write them down as fast as we're going to be going through them, it's okay. I'm going to try and write a couple newsletters on these so that you have those references later. But God's word is so abundantly clear. And we need the word of God to be a steadfast rock and an anchor and the ballast in our boat. God created the world with a word, Genesis 1-3 and Hebrews 11-3. God governs every single star in the sky and he calls each of them by name. And not one of them is ever missing, Isaiah 40, verse 26. God separates the sea with a blast from his nostrils, Exodus 15-8. Mountains melt like wax before him, uh, Micah 1-4. God plays with the Leviathan as he plays with a bird, Job 41.5, no one can ward off of his hand or, or say to him, what have you done? Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. God governs all things, natural, physical, and human choices and actions. He governs them all. So, let the cascade begin. And I want you to hear the Bible clearly teach God's sovereignty over every single detail. Some huge, some so trivial that it seems like, why would God care? He has to care. He's God. What it means to be God is to have your hand in everything, knowledge of everything, preordained, pre-planning everything and purposing. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Think about how many die are being thrown right now in Las Vegas. God governs every single one of them. He governs every single one. Matthew 10, verse 29 through 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Jesus says, look, I know when a sparrow falls out of the sky. That probably happens a lot. But if you think, wait a second, God knows what's happening in nature, but he doesn't care about me. That's why Jesus says, and I know how many hairs from your head are falling to the ground as well. I know when the sparrow falls and I know when the hairs fall. I know those numbers. I care about nature far off and I care about you individually. He knows it. In the book of Jonah, God commands a fish to swallow Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 17. God commands a plant to grow. Chapter 4, verse 6. And God commands a worm to kill it. Chapter 4, verse 7. God controls, commands. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Uh, He calls all the stars by name. Um, he knows every single one that's out there. Uh, Psalm chapter one, uh, 147, verses 15 through 18. He sends forth his command to the earth. His w- word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He's in control of everything, naturally, physically speaking. Job 37 says the same thing. Mark chapter 4, verse 39, Jesus calms the sea and the wind with just a word. Amos chapter 3, verse 6 gives us a very challenging truth. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? This is for war. And if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? God is not evil. God is good. God cannot do evil. 
but God purposes, plans, ordains, and sovereignly allows and elects that evil would happen. So many people today want to get God off of the hook when bad things happen. Well, God didn't know. God wasn't there. God wanted it to be a different way. God doesn't want to be off the hook. There are massively challenging verses in the Bible where God says, put me on the hook because I'm behind it all. I'm behind it all. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I am he. There is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and it is I who give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver you from my hand. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah writes, you are the one that has forced me into the dust. You are the one that has kicked my teeth and you are the one that has brought this calamity. You're behind it. This isn't a surprise to you. When evil happens, it's not like God is in heaven saying, well, bummer, I didn't want that to happen, but I guess I'll try and use it to my glory. God is ordaining and allowing and predestining everything that would happen. He never sins. He never does evil. He never tempts anyone. He never forces anybody to sin. The Bible's clear on that. But the Bible is abundantly clear that he is behind every action that ever takes place. Job chapter 13, verse 15. Job says, though you slay me, yet I will hope in you. Though you are the one who does this. We know the book of Job. Satan is the one who is doing everything, but God's the one who allowed it. Though you slay me, I will hope in you. Job chapter 1, verse 21. You give, you take away. Blessed be your name. Job chapter 1, verse 20, the verse right before that, it says that after Job lost everything, he falls to the ground and he worships God. I never knew what that meant until I walked through this season. It just, I I thought, okay, Job loses everything. You know the story of Job. He loses everything and then it says he worships God. What, What song do you sing in that moment? Oh, happy day, happy day. When he washed my sins away, what song do you sing? And I just thought, man, that is confusing. I don't know what that looks like. I know what that looks like now. Worship is a declaring the worth of who God is, right? It's saying you are worthy of praise. You are worthy of everything. And it's ascribing worth to God. So worship at its bare bones is just saying back to God who he is. And in the moments... That, that first week that we were wrestling with unknowns about Tyler, we didn't know if he was going to live or die. We didn't know much of anything that was going on with him. But we worshiped because we knew who God was. And we said, God, we know you're in control. You're sovereign over everything. There's nothing that happens in this life that you don't know about, that you haven't planned. Even the difficult things, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, the very same act that the brothers of Joseph meant for evil, God meant it for good. He used that act. One verse that kept coming back to my mind as I stared at my son was Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. When Moses says, please, I don't want to go to Pharaoh. I can't speak too well. God says, who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Why do you think that God, when he gives four qualities, character qualities, attributes of people... Deaf, seen, mute, or blind, he chooses three that we would call unnatural. We would call faulty human faculties. God says, I do those, and I also make you seen. I do these. I'm behind them. 
First Peter chapter four, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. So it's God's will that some should suffer and they shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. First Peter chapter three, verse 17. It is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. God's in control, and if he wills, and he allows, and he sovereignly ordains, then suffering can come about. Daniel chapter 2, he changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel chapter 4, he decrees everything that will happen. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the heart, the, the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He just turns it wherever he wants. He's the one who moves and ordains. Psalm chapter 33, verses 10 through 11, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The, Lord, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And as we saw this morning in Family Bible Hour, the, the cross, Acts chapter 4, verse 27 to 28, the cross was preordained, planned by God. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28 says this, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There was nothing outside of his plan, nothing outside of his will. He is a sovereign God. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. It's a beautiful picture of 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Even in our salvation, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's not of ourselves. It's nothing that we could do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. God is always absolutely sovereign. And that was ballast in our boat. Instantly the questions arise. What's happening? What's going on? Why does Tyre look the way he does? Why can't he breathe? Why can't he eat? Even the doctors had to run tests to figure that out. They didn't even know. But the ballast in our boat the whole time was, but God knows. God knows. Now, a lot of people, when you swing to that side, and rightfully so, to the sovereignty, absolute sovereignty of God, you just kind of take out any sense of compassion. He just stands there like an old man playing a chess game. Just move, move, move. I want to win. Boom. That's it. And that's why point number two, under who God is, is so crucial. God is always sovereign, and God is always absolutely good. God is always sovereign, and God is always absolutely good. We tend to draw a line from our experience to who God is. We, we say, okay, I'm going through suffering, so God must not care. Or I'm going through difficult times, so God must not be able to help me. Or I'm going through hardship, so God must not see. It should be the other way around. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of walking through that valley, we should go, okay, I don't know what's happening here, but I know who God is. He's always in control and he's always good. Psalm 145, verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and he is kind in all of his deeds. Everything the Lord does, he is good and he is right and he is kind. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all. And his mercies are over all of his works. So he's kind in all that he does and he's merciful in everything he does. 
He's not standing afar, standing aloof, just having fun wrecking our lives, making us miserable, some cosmic killjoy. No, everything he does is good and merciful and kind. Psalm chapter 18, verse 30, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, verse 68, You are good and you do good. You are good and you do good. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. You're not afflicting me in spite of being good. You're afflicting me because you are good and you're working for something that is for my good and for my greatest joy. Psalm 73, verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is, this is the ballast when... when I found out what was happening. My wife had found out before me, and I was driving like a crazy maniac to the hospital. Um, at this time, they were thinking that they were going to have to fly him over to Children's Hospital. We didn't know what was going on, and my wife knew a little bit more. And I walked in there, and I said, okay, what's going on? And it's very interesting because my father-in-law explained it to me and said, I think it's something like that. And I said, okay, I'll wait for the doctor. And when the doctor came and explained it to me, I, my father-in-law did a better job explaining it to me, so I went, okay, I think I understand it better. And I couldn't find my wife, and when I found her, we went to a room, and we sat, and we prayed, and we cried, and uh, we reached out to God, and we just said, help. We don't know what to do in these moments, and we don't know what you're doing here. We don't know why you're doing this, but we know two things. We know this is not a surprise. So we can trust in your working, and we know that you're good. What you are doing is good. It's for our good, and it's because you love us. It's very interesting. Obviously, you know the end of this story. Tyler seems to be doing fine, and there's a 10% chance his aorta could close again, but it's a much simpler procedure to fix that. There's a little bit of a chance that his brain might have not received enough oxygen, and so he might be a little bit slower developing on things. There's a little bit of a chance that some of his arteries might have blood pressure problems down the road. But for all intents and purposes, they think about 90% uh, he's going to be okay and, and as if nothing ever happened. And when we got out of the hospital and we, we went home and we saw all of these just victories of the kindness of God, everybody said to us, Man, God is good. And amen, he is. And I don't want to, if you were somebody who said, because I'm sure everybody here said God is good. I'm not judging your comment here. But what I realize is we tend to think if it winds up going good, it turns out, okay, God's good. And if it doesn't, well, God is still good. And this is difficult. And I realized this as we were walking, even as we were walking through, and we tried as best we could to communicate this, on the Facebook post that we did, even as we were walking through it, God's goodness was not on the line with what happened with Tyler. God's goodness was not up for grabs. If he acts this way, he's good, and if he doesn't act that way, he's bad. God's goodness was not on the line. We weren't looking at God and wondering, what's your next move going to be to prove who you are? We already knew who he was. We already knew who he was. He would have been no less good, no less gracious, and no less kind if he would have chosen to take Tyler home to be with him. Now, that's a difficult truth to preach to your soul, but that was the ballast. God hasn't changed, and therefore God's good all the time. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, God would sooner cease to be 
then cease to be faithful and good. He would sooner just cease to exist than cease to be faithful and good. Jim Boyce, in May of 2000, when he found out that he had liver cancer, spoke to his church and he said this, Should you pray in this moment for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. He said, my general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus, and it was not by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have done that. God is in charge. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on here and something bad slipped up. And God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything God does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you would change it, you would make it worse and it would not be as good. Eight weeks later, after delivering that to his church, he died of liver cancer. That paragraph I read at least a decade ago. And that paragraph and that sermon, uh, straight from Scripture, was ballast. God is in control. He's always sovereign, and he's always good. He's always sovereign, and he's always good. That's who God is. Secondly, what is God doing? This is stone or ballast. Who God is, what he is doing. We knew who God was. That wasn't changing. We knew what he was doing. In these three points, and these three points were just such a ministry to my soul, um, straight from Scripture, number one, God is always working for his glory. Whatever God does, he's always doing for his glory. This is, uh, no matter what God is doing, these, things are, these three things are always happening. Number one, God is always working for his glory. Number two, God is always working for my good. And number three, God is always working for my greatest joy, my greatest satisfaction. God is always working for his glory. If you're still in Isaiah, turn to Isaiah chapter 48, just a couple chapters over. Isaiah 48, verse 9. Listen to the way that God describes the actions that he is, is performing. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? The Bible is so clear that God does everything he does for his glory. I mean, look at that. Just in a couple verses, six times God says, I'm doing this for my glory. I'm doing this for my glory. I literally have four pages of verses from the Bible that detail God doing everything he does for his glory. And I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to put these on a newsletter. I'm not going to read all these because we don't have time. But I will give you the description of each one, okay? God chose his people, Israel, for his glory. Um, God created us for his glory, Isaiah 43. God called Israel for his glory, Isaiah 49. God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory, Psalm 106. God raised Pharaoh up to show his power and glorify his name, Romans 9. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name, Ezekiel 20, verse 14. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. God gave Israel victory in Cana for the glory of his name. God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. 
God restored Israel from exile for his glory. Jesus sought the glory of his father in all that he did. Jesus told us to do good work so that God would get all the glory. Jesus warned that not seeking God's glory makes faith impossible. John 5, we've studied that already together. Jesus said that he answers prayer that God would be glorified. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for God's glory. God gave his only son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness, Romans 3. God forgives our sins for his own name's sake. God, uh, Jesus receives us into his fellowship in the church for the glory of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son of God. God instructs us in 1 Corinthians 10 to do everything that we do for the glory of God. God tells us to serve in a way that will glorify him, 1 Peter 4. Jesus fills us with the fruits of righteousness for God's glory. Even those under judgment for dishonoring God are under judgment for dishonoring his glory. King Herod in Acts chapter 12 is struck down because he didn't give God glory. Jesus is coming again for the glory of God. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is that we would see and enjoy his glory. Even in wrath, God's aim is to make known the riches of his glory. God's plan is to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of his glory and everything that happens will redound to God's glory. And even in the new Jerusalem in eternity, the glory of God will replace the sun and that's all we will see and enjoy and savor for all of eternity. God's always working for his glory. And that's something that I knew as I saw Tyler going through what he was going through. Okay, what is God doing here? He's working for his glory. He's working for his glory. Now, again, similar to sovereignty, we tend to go, okay, God's just a big meanie. Like, he's putting me through pain so that he gets glory. Like, surely if he's God, there's got to be another way that he can go about getting glory so that I can enjoy my life. And that's why you need to have the second point. God's always working for his glory, but he's always working for your good. He's always working for your good. Everything he does is for his glory, and this is for our good. Because the greatest need that we have in life, the greatest source of our good, the greatest source of our joy, is the glory of God and being satisfied by it. Jesus knew this in John 11. Um, It's very clear. We'll get to it in a couple months in our study in the Gospel of John, but Mary and Martha say, um, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick and dying, Lazarus. Will you come heal him? And it says that Jesus loved, the Bible is so explicit, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he stayed where he was. He didn't get up and go, and he let Lazarus die. Why? Because he loved him and because he wanted to display a fuller degree of the glory of God, which is a greater miracle healing a man from sickness or raising him from the dead raising him from the dead obviously so jesus lets him die and when he shows up and mary and martha are wondering why did you let him die you could have healed him we knew you could have you didn't even need to come here you could have healed him with a word jesus says it's for the glory of god that god's glory would be seen these two don't work against each other like god wants to be glorified and Somehow, sometimes that works for our good, but usually it just works to wreck our lives. This is the beauty of being a believer. As God works everything that he does for his glory, he's working everything that he does for your good. Everything that he does. We were meant to be satisfied by glory. Why do you think that superhero movies are just blowing up? Pun intended. Um, Why do you think that everybody, I mean, they're just making a new one every Saturday, it seems. Why? Because we love the idea of the glory of somebody who is greater than us and bigger than us and stronger than us that can give us hope. 
Why do you think people loved the return of college football yesterday and the return of football uh, this season for the fall? Why do we love sports? Why do I love watching the Olympics? I, I watch sports I never knew existed. And I'm like cheering and sweating and my Fitbit's telling me my heart is racing. Why? Because I love glory. You and I were made with a soul. A soul is infinite. It's immaterial and it's infinite. And our souls in their infinite nature were made to be satisfied. But infinite souls cannot be satisfied by finite things. How many finite things do you need to fill an infinite soul to satisfy it? That's an equation that doesn't work. Even for me who doesn't know math, that does not work. You need infinity to satisfy an infinite soul. And there's only one person in the entire universe that is infinite, and that is God, never having a beginning. That's why the eternality of God is so crucial. He's infinite, and because he never had a beginning, he can satisfy your infinite soul. So as he works for his glory, even if it's difficult, painful, he is working for our good. Why do we love going camping? I mean, we're paying money to leave air conditioning. We're paying money to leave a mattress and and wake up with a sore back. We're paying money to not have showers. We're paying money to go back hundreds of years in time. Why do we do that? We do it because we love nature. We love to look at the stars. We love glory. And as God works for his glory, he's working for our good. Jeremiah 29, 11, you know it. This is a promise given to Israel. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Number one, you would typically get this as a graduating senior on a card from Hallmark or something. I know the plans I have for you. That's not what this verse is saying. Number two, you need to fit it into its context. Jeremiah is saying those words from the Lord as Israel is being led away with hooks in their nose and their people slaughtered. There's a description of Jerusalem that there was blood all over the walls and that people were hung up and filleted open so that their guts would spill out. And Jeremiah is looking from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, and he's saying, we're the people of God, and we have just been destroyed. So God must hate us. We must be done. He must not like us. It's over. Forget being the people of God anymore. And God says, as the people are being led to Assyria, say this prophecy to them. I have a plan for you, and it's a plan to prosper you and to give you hope. I'm working for your good. The New Testament equivalent of that for believers is Romans 8:28. You know it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Charles Spurgeon says this. I love this quote. Everything that happens to you, if you're a believer, is for your own good. If the waves roll against you, it only speeds your ship towards the port. If lightning and thunder comes, it clears the atmosphere and promotes your soul's health. You gain by loss. You grow healthy in sickness. You live by dying and you are made rich in losses. Could you ask for a better promise? It is better that all things should work for my good. Listen to this clearly. It is better that all things should work for my good than all things should be as I wish to have them. I don't care if it's working for my good. I don't like it, and I want it another way. No, no, no. It's better that they're all working for your good. All things might work for my pleasure, but they all might be for my ruin. 
If all things do not always please me, I know they will always benefit me. And he says, this is the best promise of this life. This is the promise we cling to. So God's always working for his glory, but that is not contradictory to God always working for my good. And then to specify that just a little bit more, number three, under what God is doing, God is always working for my greatest joy. God is always working for my greatest joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he received a ministry from the Lord, and the ministry is to be workers with the churches for their joy and for in their faith to build up their faith so that they stand firm. He says, I'm working for your joy. God has given me a gift of ministry to work for your joy, to be a shepherd, to help you in your joy. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter writes a very similar truth. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy and glory, hand in hand, inexpressible. And this is written to people who are being persecuted, who are being killed for their faith. And Peter says, oh, you have joy in the midst of your, your sorrow. You have joy. God's working for your joy. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. To the degree that you share in his suffering. So if you share in a small degree, rejoice to a small degree. If you share in a large degree, rejoice to a large degree. So in Peter's formula here, the worse your suffering and pain and trial and sorrow, the greater you can rejoice. Why? Why can you rejoice in the midst of great trials? He gives us a reason. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Rejoice now, knowing that God's in control. He's working for your good, and you will rejoice later when you see it all, when it's all made known and made clear. One more passage, Second uh, Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 4. You know this passage, Second Corinthians 4, verse 17 momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Some people ask me when I'm sharing the gospel, why should I trust in God? What's the point? Um, There's a lot of reasons why you should trust the Lord. Primarily, go to heaven and be in a right relationship with him instead of going to hell. There's a lot of reasons. But one reason that I never once shared before going through the valley that we went through with Tyler is this. I just shared this with somebody at Starbucks the other day. Why should I trust in God? He said a bunch of reasons, but can I tell you that the biggest reason right now in my mind so that none of your sorrow and suffering and pain is meaningless. Do you know for a non-believer, what they go through is just meaningless. It's suffering, it's sorrow, it's pain, and it just hurts. 
But for a believer, none of the pain that we go through is ever meaningless. It's always producing something. John Piper says it this way. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or from fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of it. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course, you can't see what it's doing. That's why Paul says, don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into a sidewalk and takes somebody out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, as Paul says, do not lose heart. Take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are loved and cared for. This doesn't mean, as God is working for our joy, doesn't mean that we don't have sadness and sorrow. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We have sadness, we have sorrow. But we can be sad and still have joy and happiness in the, in the knowledge that our God is in control, having a peace that passes understanding because of his character, of who he is and what he's doing. That was the ballast in my boat. Uh, Monday, I was in room 223, up, up in the stairs, right over there. I received a text from my wife that said, you need to come now. Um, they, they are going to have to perform open heart surgery and they're going to fly him out to Children's Hospital. Um, that's when a hurricane wind is blowing against the sails of my faith in God. And I turned to my six-period class. I said, I need to make a phone call. And I left the room. I probably shouldn't ever do that, but I did. I left the room. I called Hannah. I said, what's going on? She told me. I said, okay, I'll leave right now. I called one of the secretaries and said, I need a substitute. Told her what was going on. She said, go ahead and leave. I went back in to get my stuff. And I went back in and I told my class, okay, I know a couple things. I know, number one, your reading is due tomorrow. So get it done. I know, number two, God is in control. I know God is good. I know God loves me. He proved that once and for all on the cross. And I know that right now he's going to care for me because my son is in the hospital with a problem with his heart and I need to go. So please pray for me. But we know who God is. We know what he is doing. And because of that, we have ballast in our boat. No matter what comes, we can say, okay, I still know who you are, and that hasn't changed. I still know what you're doing, and that hasn't changed. That was the ballast. Number two, the anchor that held me fast, the anchor in my soul that held me fast. Number one, just notice we're not using reasons here. People said, what do you, why do you think God did what he did? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have reasons for why God is doing what he's doing. Frankly, if God gave us reasons for why he was doing, two things would happen. Number one, our minds would explode because when he's doing one thing, he's doing a billion things. So our, re- our, our ability to understand his reasoning would not make sense. Number two, can we honestly ask the question, would it help at all? Like if, if I'm holding Tyler and they don't know whether he's going to live or die, 
and God were to somehow say, hey, here's all the reasons of why I'm doing what I'm doing, would I go, oh, makes sense, this is fine. No, my heart would still be broken. So reasons, we wouldn't understand them and they wouldn't help anyway. God knew that. That's when Job asks, God, why are you doing what you're doing? The whole book of Job is Job saying, what is going on? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing what you're doing? God does not give him a reason. God says, let's go to the zoo. Let's hang out at the zoo. And I'm going to show you all the animals. I'm going to show you the the creation that I made. And I'm going to let you know that I'm God. I'm in control. I'm aware of what's going on. The ultimate comfort in our suffering comes not from an explanation of the cause, but from a revelation of God himself. That's why that was that ballast for me. We just ask why all the time. Think about my son, who's two-year-old, my my two-year-old son, Ethan. Um, He's starting to say why to things. You know, if I tell him to do something, why? Why should I do it? If he were to say to me, if I give him a command and he says to me, I will obey you, Daddy, but only if you explain to me why I should do it. First, I'd be blown away at his vocabulary because that's crazy. But I would say, if you obey me only because what I'm telling you to do makes sense to you, then you're not really obeying me, you're just agreeing with me. You're just agreeing with what I'm telling you to do. The problem here is you're too young to understand most of the reasons why I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. Um, we try to give reasons so that they can understand, but we tell them there's a lot you don't understand. So do it because you're two and I'm 30. Do it because you're a child and I'm an adult. Do it because I'm your dad. Just do it. So you can easily see why children need to trust their parents even when they don't understand. So how much more us needing to trust God as an infinite, holy, wise father? It's not just a difference in wisdom between us and him. It's infinitely greater than that of a, a parent or a child. It's not just that he's sovereign and all-powerful and we are, we are not. The reason we should also trust him is because he has earned our trust on the cross. So we can trust him even when he hasn't shown us the reason why yet. Beneath that question of why, beneath the why question, is really the question, God, are you for me or are you against me? Are you for me or are you against me? And that's where we go to the anchor. The anchor for my soul is the cross, and it must be for your soul as well. The anchor for my soul was the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He didn't spare his own son. He freely gave him to us. One of the, one of the darkest moments of my life was Friday when we had understood everything that was going on. We knew that Tyler had to have surgery, and we were wheeling Tyler back um, with surgeons and with doctors and nurses to the operating room. Um, it, it impressed me more than any time that week that this could possibly be the last time that I see my son alive. Um, I did not want to let go of that cart It seems way too quickly to to say, okay, go. But 
immediately as I let go of the cart, and immediately as they took my son, and the doors swung shut, almost in a finality of this is the separation between you and your son, and you don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I instantly went to the cross and realized the pain that I'm feeling being separated from my son is nothing compared to the pain that the father felt being separated from his son. Oh, we know the son's agony on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? But think of the father's agony and not being able to respond, not being able to reach out and say, I'm going to protect you. Robert Murray McShane says it this way. Jesus was was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before, and now the son had become all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He was godless. He was deprived of his God. He had the feeling of the condemned when a judge says, depart from me, you cured, and you shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power forever. He felt that God had said the same thing to him. It felt like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside, listening to hear its fall, but listening in vain. This is the hell that Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. If he is your surety, you will never be forsaken. As Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer is he did it for me. He did it for me. And so in that, in that waiting room, we waited and we prayed. I had, uh, my, my, one of my best friends called me. He said, how are you doing? How's everything going? And we have a very honest relationship to be able to ask questions and he said can i ask you a question do you still know that god loves you do you still know that god loves you in the midst of all of this and i remember saying there is no way i would ever doubt the love of god he proved it once and for all at the cross If I would doubt the love of God by God taking my son, knowing that he's sovereign and he's good and he's working for his glory and he's working for my good and my greatest joy. And if I would doubt the love of God for me, if God took my son, knowing that he didn't spare his own son. The question to my soul is, what would God need to do to prove that he loves me? He did it. He did it. So I told my my friend, no, I know God loves me. I know that. He said, good. Guys, it's not a matter of if we suffer, it's when we go through trials, when we go through sorrow, suffering. And I want to tell you this morning, like Job in Job 42.5, after going through everything he went through, and again, what we went through, it doesn't hold a candle to that. But after going through his trial, Job says to God, I had heard of you before with the ear. I knew who you were, but now I see you. My wife and I can say the same thing. We had not known the power of prayer. We had not known the power of the church. We had not known the power of God the way that we knew it, going through that time of of our valley together. So if you were to ask me today, you know what, if you could go back and change it all, 
not have to go through any of it? I'd say no. What we went through was not fun at all. But it showed me my Savior more than I ever thought possible. And for that, I would never want to do it a different way, ever. So may you and I know the love of Jesus and cling to the ballast of his character, his purpose, and may we drop anchor in the blood-soaked soil of Calvary, knowing once and for all his great love for us. God, thank you so much for your character, who you are. Thank you for your amazing love for us. And God, I pray that you would enable us to see your character on full display. Enable us to see your good purposes, your kindness in Christ. And enable us, as we rest and trust in you, to cling to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ.